Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rockerless. Every year in my hometown, the carnival would come. They would set up shop in a park in the center of town, and for just a couple of days, the entire town would revolve around what was going on at the carnival. As a kid, it was great. As an adult, I imagine it was inconvenient because parking became much more difficult during this time, and we got a lot more traffic from people out of town. But for a kid who could walk there or ride their bike, it was great. And every year, we would almost forget that the carnival was going to come, and then they would start hanging these cardboard signs on telephone poles around town, telling us when it was coming, and we would all set our mental calendars ready to go. The first years I went, I went with my family, but as I got a little older, I was able to go there with just my friends, and when that happened, it first became about optimizing our time and experiences there, where we should spend our money, what prizes we should try to win, what rides we should try to ride. But as time went on, and we got more familiar with the carnival, we had more questions. We wanted to know more about the carnival itself. And so we started showing up before the carnival would open. Now, you weren't supposed to be able to go into it, but this was our town. We knew how to get into things that we weren't supposed to get into. So we would go around back to this friend's house that we had, and we knew that at the back there was a gap in the fence we would just slide through the gap in the fence, and we would be walking around the carnival, along with all the other people who worked there who were getting it set up. Now, you couldn't go too early, or you would stand out. But if you went when it was starting to get busy, not only could you be the first people in the carnival, but you could sort of blend in and mingle in a way that didn't draw too much attention to yourself. And during that time, I got to see the carnival for what it was. What I learned was that this particular carnival and I'm guessing others like it, were more than just this thing that showed up in our town every year. When we were walking around, we would see people very busy, fixing rides, stocking the games that people would play, and then, more importantly, you got to see them interact with each other, and joke, and play around. They seemed to be very comfortable with each other, like they had worked together for a long time. Maybe some of them were even family. There's something about getting to go behind the scenes that adds a layer of complexity to something you already appreciate. I was always afraid to kind of talk to the people who work there out of fear that they would catch us sneaking around and kick us out, but I wanted to. I wanted to get to know these people, but sadly my experience was just on the surface. But every time I watch anything that involves a carnival, my memories don't go to books and TV shows and movies. Instead, I think back to the carnival that came to my town and the couple of times that I got to peek behind the curtain as to what was really going on there. It wasn't dark or sinister like in the subject of today's podcast, but it's a memory I will always value. On today's show, I'm going to talk to you about Something Wicked This Way Comes. We're going to primarily talk about the movie from Disney from 1983, but we'll also talk about the book and the author of the book, the people who made the film, the actors, the reception, the music, 
and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show. Something Wicked This Way Comes is a 1983 film by Walt Disney Productions. It was directed by Jack Clayton and based on a novel and screenplay by Ray Bradbury. The movie would not have existed without the book. So let's jump back to 1962. That is when Something Wicked This Way Comes was published by Ray Bradbury. The plot is pretty straightforward and it doesn't vary much from what you're going to get in the movie, although they will simplify things in the movie, because there's always that sort of difference between books and movies. It's about two friends, Jim Nightshade and William Halloway, and their experience with a traveling carnival that comes to their hometown in Illinois in October. The carnival is led by the mysterious Mr. Dark, who can grant you your most fondest wish, but we quickly learn that Dark is not a good person and neither is the carnival. It instead takes the energy and life force from the people who it grants these wishes to and feeds upon them. Only through confronting fear can you take on Mr. Dark and the carnival, and that's exactly what happens with Jim, William, and Will's father, Charles Halloway. There's elements of horror and fantasy, themes about good and evil. It is supposedly inspired by a real event in Ray Bradbury's life. When Bradbury was a child, he had an encounter with a carnival magician named Mr. Electro. Mr. Electro commanded him to live forever and on future visits would have conversations with Mr. Electro who told him that he was the reincarnation of a friend that he had lost in World War I. All these things intrigued a young Ray Bradbury and he would begin to write a lot after this. This is his sort of superhero origin story. The book itself got its start back in 1955 when Ray Bradbury was having a conversation with his friend Gene Kelly, who was a famous actor and director. He wanted to collaborate with Kelly, and Kelly liked the idea. So Bradbury went back to one of his short stories, a 1948 one called The Black Ferris, and turned it into an 80-page treatment. Kelly liked it, and tried to bring it to a bunch of studios, but couldn't find anyone who wanted to back it. While he was doing this, Bradbury began to expand the treatment into a novel. He did this over uh, about a half a decade. While doing this, he took the very positive Mr. Electro and turned him into a darker figure, literally Mr. Dark. He would also incorporate other members of the carnival at which he had met Mr. Electro into the story. This book works thematically with other Bradbury works like Dandelion Wine and Farewell Summer. The title is taken from Shakespeare's Macbeth, 
where the witches in that play say the line, by the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. And there's a great moment in the movie where you get some back and forth, and Jason Robards, who plays Will's dad, says that line. This work has always appealed to me because there's a heavy sense of nostalgia. The book and the movie are pretty much drenched in nostalgia for this idyllic Midwestern existence. But that existence is threatened from an external force that comes into town to ruin it. So at the same time, there's this want to protect things, basically kind of protect your childhood, protect your good memories, which is a very appealing subject. It's been used lots of times in different stories and books. The idea of wishes, the idea that your bigger dreams, which are great to have, but when they're granted to a person too quickly, that's unearned. That's not great. But instead, you can fight that. You can defeat it by accepting who you are and what you are and where you are in life. This idea of simple human pleasures versus grand visions. It's at the core of the nostalgia for small town living. And Bradbury is a master at that. And the book and the movie do a very good job of distilling that, capturing its essence. Ray Douglas Bradbury was born in 1920. He passed away in 2012, was an author and screenwriter, hugely popular, working in lots of different genres, including horror, science fiction, fantasy, mystery, just plain fiction. He's probably best known for his novel Fahrenheit 451, but he also did two very popular short story collections that many people have read, The Illustrated Man, which was turned into a very interesting movie, and The Martian Chronicles. If you like nostalgia, I would say look at Something Wicked This Way Comes, but also check out Dandelion Wine from 1957. It's excellent. While I'm primarily focused on the nostalgia and its place in these stories, his work in science fiction was groundbreaking at the time. The New York Times was quoted as saying that Bradbury was the writer most responsible for bringing modern science fiction into the literary mainstream. That's pretty impressive. So much like most books and movies, their plots are not identical because of the challenges of storytelling and the limitations of budget. Most of those things aren't thematic changes. The meaning of the book and the movie are the same, but they have to take some big, broad fantasy things and try to shrink them. One of the things that's lost that I thought would be amazing is there is a hot air balloon in the book that's not in the movie. That is the method of travel for the character known as the Dust Witch. They change that to have her just sort of turn into a fog that moves around. While that hot air balloon would have resulted in a rooftop battle, they do switch it up in the book with a noteworthy. And I, when I say noteworthy, I mean noteworthy because they do a pretty good job with this. But there's this spider or tarantula scene in the movie, not from the book, that they go all out on. And it really works. So if you're going to trade something off, that's not bad. If you're a fan of movies that have scenes with spiders on it, it's a pretty good substitution. The thing that's lost, though, is characterization in movies versus books. When you focus on one character, something has to give. And in the case of the movie, they don't spend enough time with Will and Jim. They might be the main characters, but they're in such a rush to establish the mythology and to get the movie rolling, and they do a good job of that, that we don't get to see the development of the characters or how deep their relationship is. On the surface, we get hints at it, 
and we just are supposed to play along. But of course, it's much more profound in the book. The book and the movie, as I mentioned, have very similar plots. The circus comes to town, led by Mr. Dark, and it begins to grant wishes to people in town, and they become members of the carnival, but often in a funhouse reflection of the thing they wanted. And of course, this helps to boost the circus's power. There is a character I should have mentioned named Tom Fury, who is a lightning rod salesman. He's an important character because it will be him who kills the dust witch in the movie. He's a good guy that comes to town before the circus selling a lightning rod to Jim and saying it will protect him from the upcoming storm. The storm being both a real storm or the circus. One of the things they really do a good job with is the special effects. And we'll go a little bit into that later. But one of my favorites is the use of a carousel as a time travel device. Get in it, move forward, and you age. Get in it and run it in reverse, and you get younger. It's really clever and fun, and it works very easily as a special effect in the movie. So, really good job. Something approaches in darkness while everyone sleeps, then steals their souls. Tonight, it wants two boys and one father. You're lost! Disguised as a carnival of delights, it fools everyone except three people, two small but very free spirits, and the man it thinks is too old to help them. Dad, they're after us. And now, it won't leave without them. I merely wish to give them the valuable rewards that they so richly deserve. In Ray Bradbury's masterpiece of imagination and suspense, Something Wicked This Way Comes, starring Jason Robards. I know who you are. And Jonathan Price. Tell me where the boys are hiding, and I can make you young again. Something Wicked This Way Comes. I believe in devils, but if you're a good person, we can't hurt you, can we? It wants two boys and the one man who can save them. And it's coming up next. Bradbury liked the movie, didn't think it was great, but he did say it was one of the better adaptations of his work. I often wonder if that's because he wrote it, maybe. It's easy to be pretty positive about something you worked on, even if it doesn't turn out exactly as you like. Now, the production of this film gets complicated because Disney was not happy with how the film turned out. Because the film took a while to develop, Bradbury was involved with choosing who he wanted to work on it, and then a rift forms between them because of decisions. We'll get into that right now because we'll talk about the director of the film, Jack Isaac Clayton. Clayton was born in 1921. He passed away in 95. He was a British director and producer. He seemed to specialize in taking books and translating them. He would work on films like Room at the Top in 1959 and then the very well-received horror film The Innocence in 1961, which was based on Henry James's The Turn of the Screw. He was a very choosy director, that was his reputation, and who would turn down movies that were offered to him. In 1977, Fox offered Clayton the chance to make a new science fiction movie after they had canceled another one of his films. The script was credited to Dan O'Bannon and David Geiler, but when Clayton read it, he wasn't impressed, and he turned it down, and that would be ultimately given to Ridley Scott to make, and that film 
was Alien. He has a break in filming at this point because he had a secret stroke that happened. He had had a stroke but didn't want anybody to know, so he never told anybody as he recovered because he was nervous that he would never get any more work if people knew. But eventually he would come back and do something wicked this way comes. Interestingly, he was supposed to turn Robert Ludlum's best-selling book, The Bourne Identity, into a movie starring Burt Reynolds as Jason Bourne in the early 80s. Reynolds and he had met several times, and Clayton really thought that Reynolds had a lot more potential than he had seen in movies and wanted to make this movie. Unfortunately, it kept getting postponed and then just never happened. The Bourne identity would eventually get made into a television film in 88, and then obviously a whole series of films in 2002 starring Matt Damon. Clayton and Bradbury had come together originally in 1971. They knew each other because they had worked together on Moby Dick earlier. In 71, Bradbury agreed to write a new screenplay for Something Wicked This Way Comes, and a different director was attached to direct Sam Peckinpah. It kind of got messy at this point, with Clayton returning to potentially direct it and Peckinpah being pushed out. It caused a real rift between Peckinpah and Bradbury, but Bradbury would write a heartfelt apology that seemed to help, although it kind of seemed to really be a sticking point for Peckinpah, who really wanted to direct this film. They would shop the film around, and it would land first at Paramount, but production would never start. During that time, other directors would show up and be attached to the film, or there would be rumors that they were attached to the film. People like Steven Spielberg, Mark Rydell, and David Lean. Now at this time, Disney was looking to work on more adult films. They didn't want to be just known as the family film studio or the cartoon studio. So in 81, they acquired the rights to Something Wicked This Way Comes and announced a $16 million budget for the film that would go into production immediately. The studio would ask Bradbury who he wanted to direct, and he suggested Clayton because they had worked together in the past and they worked together well. They said, great, that's where the whole Peckinpah stuff went sideways. Kirk Douglas was attached to be a part of it, but was unable to appear in the film, even though he had been a big part of the film's earlier production back in the 70s, after meeting Bradbury in a bookstore in L.A. So his son, Peter Douglas, would be the producer of the film, alongside Erwin Winkler and Robert Chardoff. With Douglas no longer in the film, Jason Robards would be brought in, and we'll talk a little bit about the cast later. But there's an announcement in a Hollywood paper from the Associated Press says, Director Jack Clayton will shoot for 67 days at the studio and at Disney's Golden Oak Ranch. Production designer Richard McDonald supervised construction of nearly $3 million worth of sets, the largest and most elaborate in Hollywood since Hello, Dolly. Principal photography would begin on September 28, 1981, and it would go for 77 days. And it was mostly filmed at the Golden Oak Ranch in Newhall, California. They tried to keep costs lower by not shooting on locations, but to capture the look they wanted of a Midwestern town, some exterior scenes were shot in Vermont. Now, as this film started to move forward, visions of the film started to diverge. Disney wanted something more accessible and family-friendly, whereas Clayton and Bradbury wanted to stick to the novel. Unfortunately, during this time, Clayton didn't necessarily stick too close to Bradbury, because he hired 
another writer to do a rewrite, which did not make Bradbury happy. That writer was John Mortimer, who has an uncredited revision. And that was done with Clayton's assistance, but with the studio's insistence. Two things would happen at this point. When the film was finally done, Disney did not like what they were seeing. And so they brought in someone to do reshoots and re-edit of the film. And that would be Lee Dyer. Lee Dyer worked in a lot of animation departments. He's mostly known for his work on things like Tron and Heavy Metal, mostly because he does not have a credit for something wicked this way comes. But if you look into his filmography, it's got a lot of great titles as animator on TV and in movies. As I had mentioned, Bradbury had written the screenplay. When he had originally written it, his adaptation was 260 pages long. That would mean that this script would probably be about four and a half hours of film. He and Clayton would cut it down, and then Clayton, much to Bradbury's chagrin, would bring in Sir John Clifford Mortimer, who was a British screenwriter, author, most famous for writing novels about a barrister named Horace Rumpole. I'm not sure where exactly the divergence in screenplay is. I can kind of guess based on what's not similar to the book. A fun little rumor or story is that Stephen King, who is a big fan of Bradbury and of this book, wrote a rejected adaptation as well. I would really have liked to have seen that one, or at least read it, just to see what King had done. As a last detail, the railroad scenes were filmed on the Sierra Railroad up in Tuolumne County, California, which I think around that area, the founder of Taco Bell had actually taken his money from the sale of the company, Taco Bell, and helped to restore a lot of the railroads in that area. So if you're looking at railroad scenes in a lot of movies, you can thank the founder of Taco Bell. For Mr. Boogity fans, the town square set used in this film with the gazebo was the same in Something Wicked This Way Comes. With all of that production drama, there is an alternative cut of Something Wicked This Way Comes that has never been screened. The Center for Ray Bradbury Studies in Indianapolis has a copy on VHS, which is the only surviving copy of the original cut. I would love to spend some time with that, or at least get it released. One of the things that's probably the saddest things we lost was an early use of computer-generated graphics that just didn't work. Although if you go and see the May-June issue of the Twilight Zone magazine in 1982, you can see a glimpse of what this might have looked like. Unfortunately, it's just too early. Another big reshoot that does work was the spider scene that they used. Originally, they had a practical mechanical effect in there with no spiders, but they ultimately decided spiders. If you watch the movie, you could see the two boy actors are a good amount older in that scene because of the reshoots. They had grown a bit. So there are some very positive things that came out of the reshoot, like the spider scene, but there are things that are lost that we still have never seen again, and I'm hoping one day we will get to see them. Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes, rated PG. Arrives Friday, April 29th at theaters everywhere. Casting for this film was complicated. A lot of people came out for a lot of different roles. Even casting the two main characters of Will and Jim was a long, drawn-out process where people were called back a dozen times to read for the part until a decision was made. 
The person who grabbed a very major part, which was the father, Charles Holloway, was Jason Robards. But the role actually had bounced around with other people potentially attached to the role, including Dick Van Dyke, Darren McGavin, Dean Jones, Charles Holloway, Walter Matthau, James Garner, Jack Lemmon, and Hal Holbrook. So a lot of people were interested in this role, or at least the studio was interested in them for this role, but it never happened. Jason Robards was born in 1922, passed away in 2000, a award-winning actor, and he is famous for being one of only a few dozen performers to have won the Triple Crown of Acting. That includes a Tony Award, an Academy Award, an Emmy Award. He also won a Cannes Film Festival Award. So he's the real deal. He's a really good actor, and he brings a lot to this role. One of his last roles was in the 1999 film Magnolia, so just a year before he passed away. I just saw him recently in the 1983 television movie The Day After. I sort of half-watched it over my shoulder because it's such a powerful film, something to see. Jason Robards is pretty great in it. Jonathan Price looks really cool as Mr. Dark in this film. A couple of other people were up for the role, and Bradbury wanted someone like Christopher Lee or Peter O'Toole to play the role. But Disney thought, well, we could save some money and keep the budget down. We'll go with a actor that's not very well known, Jonathan Price. And Price does a great job. Sir Jonathan Price was born in 1947. He has won numerous awards, appearing in very well-known movies like Brazil and big blockbuster films like Tomorrow Never Dies and the Pirates of the Caribbean films. He's a great actor and he does a great job as Mr. Dark in the film. Diane Ladd played Mrs. Nightshade. Diane Ladd's just a great actor, has appeared in over 120 films, was nominated for an Academy Award for the 1974 film Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, but would go on to appear in so many other films that people love, including Chinatown, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, Primary Colors, 28 Days, the list goes on and on. Fun fact, Ladd is the mother of actor Laura Dern. Vidal Peterson played Will Holloway. Born in 1968, he is best known for Something Wicked This Way Comes and Star Trek Deep Space Nine, so a nice Star Trek connection. Sean Carson didn't do a lot of work after playing Jim Nightshade in this film. He's best known for this and The Fun House in 1981. Arthur Hill would narrate the film as Adult Will. Arthur Edward Spence Hill is a Canadian actor, started working in the 50s worked on films like The Andromeda Strain, A Bridge Too Far, and Future World. On TV, he played lawyer Owen Marshall in the TV series Owen Marshall, Counselor at Law, but he would appear in lots of other television shows like Mission Impossible, Murder, She Wrote, and Columbo. Rounding out the cast, you had Royal Dano as Tom Fury, another great actor, Mary Grace Canfield as Miss Foley, Richard DeVallos as Mr. Crosetti, Jack Dodson as Mr. Douglas, Bruce M. Fisher as Mr. Cooper, and I want to end by talking about the Dust Witch. Pam Greer played the Dust Witch. Pamela Suzette Greer was born in 1949, had quite a career in the 70s in action and exploitation films, has continued to work, though, consistently. Quentin Tarantino is a big fan as is most people who see her, and she's great in this film. Silent but otherworldly, a really great get to play the role. So when you're going to make a moody film, you need a good soundtrack. And Clayton had picked George De La Rue, who had worked with him on films like The Pumpkin Eater and Our Mother's House, 
when Disney heard De La Rue's music, they thought it was way too dark. They would hire James Horner to do a soundtrack replacement. Now, Horner's music would get the earlier release as the soundtrack, but in 2015, Entrada Records released the De La Rue soundtrack. So you could find that online. It's also been uploaded to YouTube. So if you want to hear it, it's much darker. It's very interesting. Not that Horner's work isn't great because Horner is consistently good in everything, but another messy replacement by Disney because they thought they knew better. George de la Rue was born in 1925, passed away in 1992, a French composer who scored over 350 scores for television and movies and would win many film awards, including an Academy Award, a César Award, Gemini Award, the list goes on and on. The French newspaper Le Figaro named him the Mozart of Cinema. That's a pretty good title. He and Jack Clayton had collaborated on two films previously, 1964's The Pumpkin Eater and 1967's Our Mother's House, and they would be reunited for Something Wicked This Way Comes. But much like everybody who was involved in this film behind the scenes, it was a fairly unsatisfying experience as Disney decided to replace them. This, of course, was not great news for De La Rue, not just for his ego, but he felt it was extremely painful because it was probably the most ambitious score I wrote in the United States. And I think people agreed because for years, bootlegs of this score would float around because people really like it. And luckily, Entrada saw that and released a higher quality version of the soundtrack for us all to enjoy. The person who replaced him was James Horner. Horner was born in 53, passed away too young in 2015, wrote his first film score in 1979, but really broke out in 1982 working on Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. He would then go on to work with James Cameron, working on Titanic and Avatar, but his list of films is huge. He would work on Star Trek III, Field of Dreams, Alien, The Rocketeer, Braveheart, Deep Impact, A Beautiful Mind, The Amazing Spider-Man, just an incredible talent. If he had not passed away in a plane crash, he would probably still be winning Academy Awards. When Disney originally saw the film, they decided they didn't like it. And they had the reshoot done, which of course delayed production. And the film wouldn't get released until April 29th, 1983. And on a budget of somewhere between 19 and $20 million, it would gross $8.4 million at the box office. Not a hit. And while it would be the number two movie when it opened, it had some competition that didn't allow it to grow. So let me take a look. We got my, I got the listing for my theaters at the time. And at this point, we did have two movie theaters in our town, a fourplex and a sixplex. At the fourplex, they had Lone Wolf McQuaid, Valley Girl, Something Wicked This Way Comes, and the Bronx Warriors. So this is where I would have seen it. This is the theater that I was able to get to very easily. At the Sixplex, they had Gandhi, Tootsie, Max Dugan Returns, another Jason Robards movie. So Jason Robards is so big that he has two movies in theaters at that point. Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, Flashdance, and The Hunger. So a pretty good lineup of films that you could see where Something Wicked This Way Comes could get buried as it moved forward. On this page, there's not even an ad for Something Wicked This Way Comes this week for some reason. Nowhere to be found. So they weren't even pushing it big. So with all that effort that Disney was putting into reshoots, they sort of dropped the ball in my area when it came to marketing. I mean, there's a very big ad for 1990 The Bronx Warriors. 
and a pretty big one for The Hunger, but nothing for Something Wicked This Way Comes. The complete top 10 of movies that week, number 10 was Max Dugan Returns, number 9 was The Outsiders, number 8 was The Meaning of Life, number 7 was Gandhi, number 6 was Lone Wolf McQuaid, number 5 was The Hunger, number 4 was Valley Girl, which my sister took me to see, number 3 was Tootsie, Number two was Something Wicked This Way Comes. And number one was Flashdance, which I think my whole family went and saw. They loved Flashdance. That soundtrack was playing in my house forever. Reception of the film was sort of mixed. People seemed to like the film, but thought it was trying to do too much. And they didn't like necessarily the Norman Rockwell-esque qualities of the film. Roger Ebert, though, gave the film three and a half out of four stars. He really liked it. He said, It's one of the few literary adaptations I've seen in which the film not only captures the mood and tone of the novel, but also the novel's style. Bradbury's prose is a strange hybrid of craftsmanship and lyricism. He builds his stories and novels in a straightforward way with strong plotting, but his sentence owes more to Thomas Wolfe than to the pulp fiction, and the lyricism isn't mixed in this movie. In its description of autumn days, in its heartfelt conversations between a father and a son, in the unabashed romanticism of its evil carnival, and even in the perfect rhythm of its title, this is a horror movie with elegance. Boy, could Roger Ebert really review films well. His hosting partner, Gene Siskel, though, two out of four stars, thought it tried to cram too much into the story, so he wasn't as big a fan. I'm going to go with what Roger Ebert says. It's an ambitious film, and when it works, it works very well. The film made its way to home video pretty quickly, and it was rented and bought at the video stores I worked at with some regularity, probably rented more than bought. I remember that the Laserdisc was a pretty big hit, though, because people would come into the Suncoast I worked at and pick up the Laserdisc, probably because of the commentary track by Ray Bradbury, the director of photography, Stephen Burham, and the special effects consultant, Harrison Ellenshaw, were all on this audio commentary track, and that alone would make it worthwhile for picking up. So you have this great book, great movie, has a lot of nostalgia, and a lot of nostalgia for people who saw it when they were younger. It's also a Disney property, and you know they love to do stuff with their property. In 2014, they announced a remake of the film with Seth Graham Smith attached to make his directorial debut on it with Graham Smith saying he wanted to focus more on the source material, make it closer to Bradbury's original vision. That was 2014. It is many years later, and we still do not have anything with Something Wicked This Way Comes. This might be one of those properties where it makes a lot of sense for it to be on a streaming service. It could be a multi-part series. It could even open a new universe where we have the Bradburyverse of connected nostalgia stories being told by different writers and directors. Autumn and nostalgia go very well together, and Ray Bradbury was the master of it. Unfortunately, not a lot of that nostalgia has made it to the big screen. This film is unique in that regard, and despite what shortcomings people might find in the film, it does a great job of invoking nostalgia in people. So if you're looking for something a little different to watch for the Halloween season, or just for autumn in general, why not give Something Wicked This Way Comes a shot? It's got a great cast, a wonderful score, a very interesting production history, and it's just wildly entertaining.
Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist and instagram.com slash retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you like what you hear, you should follow Peachy on Twitter and Twitch. He's at PeachyPixel8. That's the word Peachy, the word Pixel, and the number 8. The image you see promoting this show was provided by the artist Christopher Tupa. If you like what you see, you should drop by Christopher Tupa's website. That's at ctupa.com. That's C-T-U-P-A dot com. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show. If you'd like to support the show, you could do so very easily by giving it a five-star review wherever you download the show. The five-star reviews are all that really drives anyone else to find shows nowadays. So if you have the opportunity and can do that, I would really appreciate it. If you'd like to support the show further, The Retroist is on Patreon. You can drop by patreon.com slash retroist. Supporters of the show get bonus episodes, bonus tracks, supporter-only episodes, bonus scans, and access to the Retroist Discord. It's a great retro community, and I'd love to see you there. I'd also like to thank a couple of supporters, Patrick Hiller, Dominic Abram, Jeff Taylor, T.D. Bauer, Sean Conklin, Lucas Gromejo, M.C., Jay Egan, Chris Butler, Weirder Science, Walt Keegan, Andre Bjarkson, Shane Hunziker, and Steve Hanna. Thanks to all of you for support of the podcast and the site. I'm really glad to have you aboard. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. First of all, it was October, a rare month for boys. Not that all months aren't rare, but there be bad and good, as the pirates say. Take September, a bad month. School begins. Consider August, a good month. School hasn't begun yet. July, well, July's really fine. There's no chance in the world for school. June, no doubting it, June's best of all. For the school's doors spring wide, and September's a billion years away. But you take October now. School's been on a month, and you're riding easier in the rains jogging along. You got time to think of the garbage you'll dump on old man Prickett's porch, or the hairy ape costume you'll wear to the YMCA the last night of the month. And if it's around October 20th, and everything's smoky smelling, and the sky orange and ash gray at twilight, it seems Halloween will never come in a fall of broomsticks and a soft flap of bedsheets around corners. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.